Good morning, guys. It's great to be here. Ireland is not this hot. I'll just go ahead and tell you that. Our heat wave temperature in Ireland maxes out at about 70 degrees. That's the once in 100 years temperature. No, that's once every couple of years. We stay in the 60s a lot, which is actually pretty nice. Um, we're going to be looking this morning at uh, the Gospel of Matthew. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Matthew chapter 11. A very familiar passage to many of you. Looking at verses uh, 25 through 30. If you would, in honor of God's word, would you stand with me as we read? At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Let's pray. Um, Father, we give you thanks for your word that you have revealed yourself to us here in the scripture. That you give us this wonderful message of the gospel. And you show us your love and your mercy that we can come to you and find rest. Uh, we pray now that as we just kind of plow into this little section, Lord, that you will again meet us, that your spirit will teach us all the deep things of the gospel that angels long to look into. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated. So we look over today, we're going to be looking at this uh, invitation to soul rest. Okay, Jesus says, if you come to him, you will find rest for your souls. I stumbled across a blog this week by a young European man in his early 20s. And this is what he writes. He said, sometimes I can't help but envy people who are content with what they have in life. A steady job, a steady home with a, with a loved one, and that's it. Some people are actually happy living that way, and I envy their happiness. Some people do not feel the need to follow the horizon, to go see what's beyond the next hill. Some people are happy drinking the same beers every weekend with the same friends and the same surroundings. Some people like to think they're happy, but in reality they are not. Why do I envy that feeling of contentedness? A restless soul should be the happiest of souls, right? I mean, we're always on the hunt for the next adventure. We really do chase after our dreams like there's no tomorrow. And once we've got our current goals in place, there's no stopping us from achieving them. But here lies the problem. There are always new goals to achieve, more roads to travel, 
more things to do, more places to discover. It never ends. We never reach a certain level and become satisfied with what we have. Once you go restless, there's no turning back. Sure, I'm happy with my hunger, my thirst for something more, for adventure and the thrill of going from place to place. But once you stop at some place for too long, you become depressed, stagnated, and bored. Deep inside, I search for a place to settle down, a place I could call my own, for people which I could call my tribe. But will it be possible? Will I ever be able to settle down somewhere, to grow roots and be happy about it? I would love to someday. A restless soul is a person that cannot rest wherever they end up. A restless soul never feels at ease with their surroundings or with the people they surround themselves with because there's always something wrong. There's always something better. And a restless soul can't help themselves but to go looking for it. The drive to move onwards is constant and ever present. A restless soul is constantly searching for a meaning to life, a meaning for their existence, a meaning for everything. A restless soul knows deep inside that there's something more, that life can be better, happier, and more adventurous. A restless soul knows that the life we've been taught to live is wrong and spend the rest of their lives trying to fix it. So our blogger here uh, paints a picture of a soul without rest, full of angst and longing, disconnected from purpose, meaning, disconnected from security, and ultimately disconnected from completeness and unable to love. I think for him... And this blogger is not a Christian. He doesn't claim to be a Christian. He calls himself a a pagan, a seeker. And for him, and I think for Jesus, for us, Jesus offers this invitation that we just read a minute ago to come and find rest. That there is rest available. And, And he's not talking about physical rest. Okay? We are physically tired, but Jesus isn't talking about physical rest. He's talking about soul rest. Soul rest. So as we dig into this today and look at this idea of soul rest, um, I'll give you an outline. We want to look at three areas. First, um, where does this soul unrest come from? What's its source? Where does soul unrest come from? What's its source? Uh, Secondly, we're going to dig into the nature of soul, of the restless soul. So we'll be looking at its symptoms. Its symptoms. And thirdly, um, the cure for the for soul unrest, so the solution. So we'll look at its source, its symptoms, and its solution. So what's the source of a restless soul? Where does soul unrest come from? So we look back at verse, uh, I wrote verse 7, but that is not correct. Verse 27. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father. And no one, knows the, no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. I think the beginning of soul unrest is, is right here in this, little, in this little verse. No one knows the Father but the Son. And for me, that sends my, my mind, and it should send us careening back, tumbling back to the beginning, tumbling back to Genesis, 
that no one knows the Father tumbles us back to Genesis, to all the way back to the very beginning to Genesis 3. I'll read a section from Genesis 3, starting with verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat. But from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God said, You shall not eat from it or touch it or you'll die. The serpent said to the, the, serpent said to the woman, You surely will not die. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. And she gave also to her husband with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloth coverings. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you not to eat? Then the man said, The woman, the woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me from the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is it that you've done? And the woman said, The serpent, the serpent deceived me and I ate. See, there was a time when we walked um, in the garden with our creator. There was a time when we walked with our father and we had intimacy with him. We had completeness and wholeness. All of our longings were met. Our deepest needs were satisfied in the garden with God. But we turned from him. See, at the eating of the fruit, Adam reached out and he untied the cord that tethered our souls to God. When Adam ate the fruit, he untied our souls. He untied us. He untethered us from our God. And in Adam, we turned our backs on the fountain of living waters and sought life in other places. And then what happened in verse 24? So he, being God, he drove the man out. And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword, which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. God drove them out. So picture Adam and Eve standing, standing there looking back. They've been driven out of the garden and they're looking back, immediately aware of all that they've lost. I think Adam Adam could look and he could see the garden. He could see the invisible attributes of God. He could see his eternal power. He could see his divine nature but he could no longer be in relationship with him. He was looking for the father through the flaming swords of the cherubim, but he couldn't see him for God was hidden, unable to be in fellowship with sin. 
And as Paul, the Apostle Paul would later say, when Adam acted at that time, he acted as our representative. In Romans 5, uh, Paul makes it clear, when Adam acted, when he did that, when he untethered himself and Eve from God, untethered his soul from him, he walked away from the fountain of living waters that we went with him. He was our representative, our federal head. And so now God is hidden and we are disconnected from him. And no one knows the father except the son. And that's where we are. It's a kind of a picture um, of that untethered soul. I, I was trying to think of what's a, a good picture for that. And I used to, when I lived, when you know, we lived in Moody for a long time, I, I uh, grew a lot of flowers. I really enjoyed flowers. And there's a lady in, in the church in Moody, Peggy Lowry, that has like 100 different varieties of daylilies. You know, she's just, a, she's just a daylily lady. She's just got them all over the place. And with those, you know, you divide those every year. You know, you can, they'll, they grow too big. So I'd go over to Peggy's house and she'd cut me off, you know, take them home. And I had daylilies all over my house. And other flowers, I really enjoy that kind of getting in the dirt and the task of growing them and seeing them come up. But, and the flowers, they, they flourish. They're beautiful. They smell great as long as they're connected to the plant, right? But what do we do? Oh, that's a pretty one. I think I'll cut it and put it in the kitchen. Put it in a vase in the kitchen. And what does it do? Yeah, we all know what it does, don't we? The minute it's severed from the plant, it starts dying. It may hold a little luster. It may suck a little little life out of some water or, or some other thing we put in there. But in the end, the plant is dying. It's untethered. It's disconnected from the source of life. And that's what Adam did. When, when sin entered the world, when we ate the fruit, we became untethered from the very source of life. Okay? And this is the source. This is where soul unrestness comes from. This sense of, of angst and longing and lack of completeness, lack of wholeness, safety, security. It's where all this comes from, the garden. It all comes from the garden. So what are some of the symptoms of a restless soul? So have you ever, have you ever worked yourself to weariness? I'm not talking to you ministry guys because I know that hasn't happened, but I'm talking about regular people with regular jobs. Have you ever worked yourself to weariness? You know, felt the kind of bone-aching tiredness that, that demands sleep? Um, or ha- have you ever carried a burden till it just wore you down to a nub? Maybe a physical burden or some other kind of burden where it just wore you out. Back in Ireland, we first, I guess the first year that we were there, and our church was you know, fairly small, but we had a, a, a lady in our church that led the music, like Jenny, and um, she had a heart for teenagers. And so she'd get our, we had a couple teenagers in our church, and there were a few other small evangelical churches within a couple of hours, and she kind of gathered all the teenagers, and we had maybe 15 teenagers you know, uh, that gathered together. And we went to a place called Glendalock, which is kind of, we were kind of Dublin, Wexford was down here. It's kind of in the middle in the area called Wicklow. It's in the Wicklow Mountains. And it's a sixth, a sixth century monastic site. 
So pretty ruins there and two beautiful lakes in the valley. Uh, I think Glendalock actually means Valley of the Lakes. So you have these tremendous peaks on right and left, you know, and Glendalock is this valley with the monastic stuff in the middle and the lakes. It's just a gorgeous place. Actually, it's the last kind of place we visited before we left Ireland. We went back there. Um, so you have the Valley of the Two Lakes with like three, 4,000-foot peaks on each side. And it's, it's just a great place. People love to go there. It's beautiful. Lots of hiking trails at Glendalock. And you can take easy trails, you know, through the valley. But they also have these trails that you can go up, I think it's six or 800 steps, wooden steps, and get up on the ridge. And so Tracy organized the, um, the teenagers, we're going to go on a hike. And, and uh, it wasn't the easy hike because it's teenagers, so we're going to do the big hike, of course. You know, and I, I'm not a teenager. My knees hurt, you know, and I've got this rotator cuff thing and the tennis elbow and my eyes. I feel your cornea, my eyes. And, I mean, I've got all these aches and pains. And, like, we're going on a hike. Okay, I don't do hiking, but we'll do this for the teenagers. So, of course, Tracy and Craig, they're younger, lots of energy. So they plan the, the you know, five-mile hike. And it's not five-mile walking, you know, this way. It's five-mile this way, you know. And so we go up the 800 steps, you know, and you get up there. The t- it, was, it was really beautiful, beautiful place. But one of the rules she made was, look, teenagers, you know, don't bring anything with you, okay? No, no backpacks, none of that. It's a four-mile hike, and we come down. There's a, a place there we can, you know, if you want to bring a little water, that's fine. Well, there was, I didn't know very many of the kids, and there was a, a young lady there named Naomi, probably 16, and as the girls are wont to do, I'm not leaving my house and going on a five-mile hike without my makeup. Just not going to happen. And so she brought a backpack with her makeup. And so this is a pretty strenuous hike, and, and I was out of shape, but Naomi was really out of shape. Okay? And I realized after we got to the top of the steps, this young lady will never make it with this backpack. Because we got to the top of the steps, and you're just kind of on a slow rise for the next three three miles, you know, up, and it's very laborious, and then you then you come rocketing down, so I said, you know what, I'll take that backpack, and, uh, you know, a really lightweight becomes really, really heavy if you carry it for a long time, and that 10-pound back- backpack weighed about 500 pounds by the time we got done with that hike. I'm dragging the backpack along, I'm like, this is great, but that sense of burden, you know, and I think that there's an invitation, you know, get back to Matthew, from Jesus, he says, come, um, the older version say, hither to me. I love that kind of phrase. Hither to me, come to me, you who are what? Weary and heavy, heavy laden, heavy burdened. See, these are the people that Jesus invites to come, the heavy burdened people. Um, so we've already mentioned that he's not talking about physical rest here. He's not talking about being tired, but soul rest. And so the weariness comes from the burden of seeking soul rest. Jesus has come to me, you're, you, you are weary, and I will give you rest. Rest is found in me. See, the burden of seeking to gain all that was lost by Adam, the burden of seeking to get back to the garden, to find peace in our life, to find security, to find completeness, to find meaning, to find purpose. All of these things which are actually fruits of intimacy with God that we lost. We lost ultimate peace. We lost security. We lost completeness. We lost meaning and purpose when Adam bit that fruit. We lost all that. And the burden of trying to get back to that is exhausting. And we see a picture of 
of, of this by the, how Jesus uses the or the use of the phrase heavy burdened, and he uses it a little later over in Matthew 23. He says this, he says, the scribes, and this is verse two, the scribes and Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do, for they preach, but they don't practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. See, the scribes and the Pharisees, what they did was they added innumerable rules to the law, and they required that the people keep these rules in order to be holy. Okay? And the implication here is that there is a path through effort, through religious duty, to accomplish soul rest. There is a path to accomplish it through religious duty and effort. And unfortunately, many of us dedicate ourselves to that path, and it exhausts us. It's a path that cannot be traveled, and it leads to only deeper and deeper and deeper unrest. See, pursuing the law for soul rest will only heighten our separation from the Father. As we stack one brick of religion on top of another, we soon realize that I can't do enough religious duty to ever get back to the garden. I can't do enough. It's not possible. There aren't enough bricks to satisfy what he requires. We're trying this little strategy. It's a part of, it's a part of Ireland. I really, just beautiful. I loved it. They have all these rock walls everywhere. And, and so they're raising sheep, right? And so if you open the gate to take out the tractor, or if you open the gate just to get in, you know, the animals get out. So the gates stay closed. And what they did, though, was they, in the rock walls, they built, like you have a wall going along, and they built these little steps, not, not just straight, but like a, just a, a, a rock sticking out here, another rock sticking out here, a little low place in the wall, and a rock sticking. And these are all over the place, and it's integral into the part of the wall. It's like we can get over the wall without going through the gate. And religion for us is an attempt to get over the wall without going past the cherubim. We're going to stack enough bricks up that we're actually going to be able to get back, get back to intimacy, get back to rightness in our life. If we can do enough. But our best efforts at religious performance always fall short. Religious effort is just one way that we try to obtain soul rest. There are others. Um, Here, I've listed out a few to think about. Other ways that we're trying to obtain soul rest, approval or affirmation. Without the knowledge of God's love that we lost with Adam... We constantly search for someone to love us unconditionally. And we place the weight of that need on those around us. And it crushes them. Approval, affirmation, control or safety. Without a vision of God's glory before us, we give ourselves to anything. Oh, I I jumped. I'm actually having cornea problems as well. I can only read out of one eye. Without the safety of all the... Without the safety of the all-powerful and good creator at our side, we live in the fear of pain, the fear of bad health, and our life mission becomes avoiding suffering. All right, that's control and safety. When we're we're using control and safety to get us all the things that that we lost in the garden. See, without, without what we had in the garden, we live lives of pain, of in fear of pain and fear of bad health. Addictions. Without a vision of God's glory before us, 
We give ourselves to anything that will numb our pain. All right, addictions. Without a vision of God's glory before us, we give ourselves to anything that will numb the pain of pointlessness. And instead of soul rest, we find destruction. And in our culture, big narcissism. Without being tethered to the only God, creator, and king, we are adrift in a world of self. Self-actualization, self-fulfillment, self-knowledge. And our lives become smaller and smaller as we look inward to solve a problem that can't be solved there. So how, how do you recognize where you go for soul rest? How do I recognize what, where I go for soul rest? Uh, Tim Keller gives us three strategies. Where do your thoughts go effortlessly when nothing else is demanding your attention? What do you enjoy daydreaming about? What occupies your mind when you have nothing else to think about? Do you develop personal scenarios about career advancement or material goods like a dream house or a relationship? One or two daydreams do not indicate idolatry, he says, but do you habitually think about, what do you habitually think about to get joy and comfort? So what do you think about? Uh, another way to discern your soul rest strategy is to look at how you spend your money. Jesus said where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. Your money flows most effortlessly toward your heart's greatest love. Uh, a third way is to look at your uncontrolled emotions. When you're angry, when you're full of fear, when you're full of despair and guilt, ask yourself, what in my life is being threatened that's causing this? What do you think that you can't live without? And these are ways to try to discern what are our strategies to get back in the garden? What functionally are we living with? So what's our solution? Christ says the solution is a change in yokes. A change in yokes. Come to me, who are, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, me, you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and humble in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. Right. So how does Jesus give us soul rest? He invites us to change yoke. So what is a yoke? It's not part of an egg. Well, it is part of an egg, but that's not what we're talking about. A yoke is a wooden bar that's placed across the neck of an animal, and it connects him with the load. All right. Or to another animal so they can pull a load. It's, you know, it's an agricultural farming society, and this is the metaphor they would understand. So Jesus is, is telling us that in order to find soul rest, reconciliation, restoration, a relationship with God, we must unyoke ourselves from all our burdens, all the powerless attempts to return to the garden and yoke ourselves to him. Unyoke ourselves from powerless attempts to get back in the garden. I used to have a boat when I was in my early 20s. I, I loved to fish, and I said, well, I'm going to go get a boat. And I bought this little John boat. It was a, it was a leftover boat from Lake Purdy, if you know where Lake Purdy is. I had these, used to have these old John boats, and I bought a John boat down there. And the old pastor at the church gave me a one-and-a-half horsepower motor. He, yeah, yeah, it was bad. So my dad and I... His, his grandmother, my great-grandmother, had a house on uh, Lake Mitchell when we were kids, and our cabin, and we'd go down there and fish. And so, so I said, come on, Dad, we'll, we'll, we'll go down there now. We don't have a house there, but we can take our boat. i got a boat. So we took the boat down there and got out, and we went crappie fishing and fished for you know, a good part of the day. And uh, 
we were up in Hatchet Creek, which is a, it's a big creek. It's, it's almost like the, the river itself, fishing. And I, so I cranked up, got the one and a half time to go home, the one and a half horsepower motor. We came out of Hatchet Creek, and the boat launches over here. And we come around, and the waves are about this high, and the wind's blowing right in our face. Now, and we're not moving. The wind, the my dad now calls, refers to that boat as the death trap. Okay. It worked out well because right after that day, he went and bought a boat. So it was, you know, it worked great. You know, but he, there wasn't enough power to get us home. We just had it wide open. That one and a half motor was hitting a 25 mile an hour wind and we weren't moving. There just wasn't enough power. And Jesus said, look, all these attempts, all the things we described a minute ago, are powerless to get us where we need to go. They're absolutely powerless. So let go of our powerless attempts to be in the presence of God, to find that connectedness that will actually give us soul rest. Let go. And to take on his yoke. His yoke is light and easy, he says. What is that? It's the yoke of trust. It's have faith. It's belief. That's what we have to carry. That's it. He accomplished all the rest of it. Romans 5 says this, But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by this, his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have reconciliation. See, Jesus invites us to acknowledge and confess our powerless attempts to get home and to accept that he's done everything that needs to be done for us, for us to experience reconnection to God unconditional love, reconciliation, acceptance, delightful approval, safety, security, and reputation. They're all ours if we turn to him. So just to finish up, I want to remind you of something from Genesis 3. The serpent is still slithering around, offering fruit. Okay? I don't know how he carries it. He drags a bag of fruit, basket of fruit with him. And he's constantly tempting us that there is a better way. There is a better way, just like he did with Adam. There is a better way for peace. If you just be in control, you can provide yourself peace because God, he's not trustworthy. Okay? There's a better way. There's a better way to safety. There's a better way for approval. There's a better way for completeness, wholeness, connectedness. There's a better way. Just take this. There's a better way. He's still there and he's still offering the fruit. But for us, we need to hear the true invitation. And we need to hear it all the time, guys. Because whether you came here not, not knowing Christ, not wanting to, the invitation is for you. But if you came here and said, well, I've been a Christian since Moby Dick was a minna. You know, the invitation is still for us. We still have to hear it because the, 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 the serpent's still there, isn't he? He's still offering the fruit. There's a better way. So we have to continually hear and cling that we come to Christ for soul rest. All right, let's pray.
Father, thanks so much for your word and just for your love for us. Thanks for the invitation. Thanks that you've done all that we need. You've done it. Even from the passage we didn't read in, in Genesis where you made the first step. Where you promised a redeemer and then fulfilled your promise. You've done it. You've provided the way, the truth, and the life. And no one is going to come back to the garden except through Jesus. And, but we're thankful. And pray that this truth will sink in deep and that we will hear the invitation, hear the gospel daily as we encounter the serpent and his fruit. And pray this in Christ's name. Amen.